Um, but if you haven't been here, just real quickly, our six core values are this. Um, one, pursue God together. This is a journey that we are on as people of faith, as the people of God together. Secondly, that people matter. People matter to God. People matter to us. And we are going to love and invest in people's lives. Secondly, or third, is invest and invite. That we are going to invest our lives in the lives of other people and invite them to join us on this journey. And, well, I guess four is circles, not rows. And again, this goes back to groups. We want everyone to be connected to a smaller group of people. There is accountability and there is belonging and there is care that comes from that. And that is very important to us. Last week, Kyle did seeing needs, meeting needs. It's not enough just to see that this world is broken, but to look into this world and see where God is at work and join Him in what He is doing. And then this week, we're going to talk about this last one, multiply yourself. And as we do that, I want to begin with a really, really important question. And the question is this, what is next? What is next? And I know for you, you're probably thinking, okay, well, um, I'm going to go to Bible class, or I'm going to skip Bible class, I'm going to go to brunch or lunch, or there's a Super Bowl party later, or there's a nap in my future, or tomorrow is work. But, but thinking a little bit past the short term and asking the question, what is next? What, what is next for you as a parent? What is next for you as a student? What is next for you as an employee or a boss? And then in our context, what is next for us as a church? Because typically in our life, we don't think very much about what comes next. We don't think very much about what's next past really tomorrow or next week or maybe next month if something big is coming up. We don't really look towards the future because the future is unknown and it's uncertain. And that makes us kind of uneasy. We don't like not knowing what tomorrow looks like. We, we don't like to, to think about it because there's not really a way to know. And a lot of times it causes worry and it causes stress. And I think the reason why is next means, go to the next, means transition. And transition means change. And change is going to mean stress. And so as we look at what's next, there's some anxiety that comes with it. Because we're projecting out into the future what we assume is coming next, of what's going to happen. Back when we were still in Cleveland, Gracie began kindergarten. And I, I ask her permission, and Ryan's actually for this, but they began, Gracie began kindergarten. And she, the year before, had gone to preschool. And the preschool that we picked for her to go to was one day a week. And so she would go, I think, on Thursdays, all day to school, and she would come home, and she was kind of wiped out and tired. And so the following year comes, and she's going into kindergarten, and she is so excited. And we snapped a picture of her on the first day of school. Gracie was thrilled to be going to kindergarten. 
Ryan was not thrilled that her sister was going to kindergarten. And, and she was so excited. We took pictures all day of her in, in class. And then she gets home from school, first full day of school, and she crashes. And I looked forever last night. I could not find that picture. But she crashes on the floor. And she slept all through the night. And the next morning, we go in to wake her up. I said, Gracie, we got to get ready for school. She says, wait, you mean I have to go again? <laughs> because she was so used to that one day a week that finding out every day was coming it was a little bit more than what she expected. My question, how do you know that you're really prepared for what's next? How do you know that you're really prepared for what comes next? How, how do you know that you're really prepared for marriage when you stand and say, I do? How do you know that you're really prepared when the doctor comes in and says, okay, you can take the baby home? How do you know that you're really prepared for this new job or life on the other side of a loss, life on the other side of a divorce? How do you know that you're really prepared for that moment? And the difficult part of the equation is you never truly know if you're ready until you're in the moment. And truth be told, you're probably not ready even once you're in the moment. How do we know that we were prepared as a church to handle a worldwide pandemic? We didn't. It wasn't expected. And for the early church, this question of what comes next was huge. You think about the life of Jesus pulling these 12 disciples in and pouring his life into them and preparing them to do life without him telling them it's better that I'm going away so that my spirit can come and dwell among you and that you can be the people of God on this earth and represent me to this world. But the question is, how did they know that they were truly ready for that moment when Jesus would finally say, it's now yours? Because in the moment, these disciples weren't thinking about, well, what comes next? even though Jesus was preparing them for it. He was trying to get them ready to do life without him. And they wouldn't find out whether or not they were ready for it until they were in the middle of the fire. And so this movement begins with these early apostles. And this church is born. 
And this church is gathering steam, and then persecution breaks out, and the church seems to scatter. But there's this one disciple, and his name is Stephen. And Stephen is a passionate follower of Jesus. And he is preaching to the Jews, and because he is preaching, he is stoned to death, and he is killed. One of the very first, most passionate followers of Jesus. One who it would seem like the, the church going forward is going to ride on his shoulders. And now Stephen's life is no more. And the question comes back, well, okay, what, what's next? After Stephen's done, what's next? What's going to happen to this early church? What's going to happen in the lives of these believers, how is this message going to continue? Is it going to be through the apostles? But amazingly enough, God is raising up someone else that no one expects as Stephen is dying. In fact, he's the one who's basically presiding over this event. So we're going to jump in to the text in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. And Saul is the one who was basically presiding over Stephen's death, breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priests and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, and that's this phrase for the early church, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Going on. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And so Saul has this encounter with Jesus. He has this encounter where he is basically blinded for three days, and he's not sure what he is supposed to do. He is completely reliant on someone else to take him by the hand and lead him wherever he is going to go. This is a man who has been persecuting the church and now has met Jesus. And it's this man, Saul, who's going to become Paul, who God is going to use, who God is going to raise up to be a powerful instrument in the kingdom of God. One that no one expected. In fact, they are so surprised and fearful of him that they believe it is a trap. So for Paul, the question, well, what's next? In this moment where he doesn't know what's going on. He can't see. He can't really walk because he doesn't know where he's going. Reliant on someone else to lead him 
wherever he will go. What's next? But the beauty of this story is that God has already been raising up someone else who will walk alongside him in the early part of his ministry. And if you want to go back real quickly to chapter 4, chapter 4, there we go, there we go. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, um, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So it's the first time we hear about this guy named Barnabas. And Barnabas is a disciple of Jesus, and he's going to become very, very instrumental in the life of Paul. Because what happens is Paul meets Jesus on this road to Damascus. And he is changed. And his eyes are open. He begins to follow Jesus. And then listen to what happens immediately, verse 19. After taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, think about this for just a second. He has been persecuting the church, persecuting the church, persecuting the church. And he encounters Jesus has this moment where his eyesight is taken away, and for three days he is blind. And then his eyes are opened and he can see. And immediately, the very first thing he does is he runs into the synagogues and into the streets and he starts telling people about Jesus. Which is like, yeah, like that's what you're supposed to do, right? He's going out there, and what happens is he's doing it so boldly and so powerfully that the Jews who hear this want to kill him. And they start to plot that we're going to take his life. The very one who was persecuting the church is now a part of the church, and all of the Jews are wanting to kill him now. So, what's next? What is next? And he finds himself having to flee for his life, getting out of the city. Okay? Here's my question What would have happened if Paul continues on that path? What what would happen? If Paul continues to charge into every synagogue and continues to say, you're wrong, you need to turn to Jesus the way he's going right now. Here's my guess. And and there's a reason I, I think we don't know the answer to this. But my guess is the very same thing that happened to Stephen would happen to Paul almost immediately. So what's the problem? The problem 
is if you're not there. And if he does that, the majority of the letters of the New Testament that we have today would not be there. And, and so what happens next, I believe, is so powerful. Okay. And, and we started this whole series with this passage that we're going to go to next. And I want to kind of come back to it, especially to focus on the end of it. Because my, my thought is 20 years ago when I was beginning in ministry, I wouldn't have picked up on this. I wouldn't have seen this. I think this is one of those things that I've begun to see as I've been in ministry longer. So verse 22 of chapter 11. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When they arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught in great numbers. What Barnabas does, as he says, Paul, I know you're passionate about Jesus, but at the pace you're trying to do ministry right now, you're not going to make it. And I believe for the next year, Paul is doing ministry alongside Barnabas, learning how to be a minister, learning how to care for people, but probably also learning how to care for himself. Because you can go at, at such a pace that you burn out. That, that even though you're passionate about following Jesus, the road gets really, really difficult. Over the past, I guess, three to four years, one of the things that I've seen in our churches, and this is not just a, a Church of Christ thing, is I have so many friends who have walked away from ministry. And when I say so many, probably 25 to 30 friends who have been in full-time ministry that have walked away. Some because they've been burnt by people. 
Many because they burn out. Or they work so hard serving a church that their marriage suffered. And it breaks my heart to see so many friends who I know love Jesus and are passionate about following Him who've walked away. And part of the reason, and this is just my opinion, is because of the pace that we expect ministers to live their life at. And I am so, so thankful for this church and our shepherds who do not expect that of our ministers, who expect us to take care of ourselves and give us space and time. But there's a lot of places that does not happen. And I was kind of sharing with, with our shepherds this past year, you know, one of the things I would love for our church is to be a place that pours their life in to young ministers, who invites people to intern, young ministers to intern with us. And not just to say we want a children's ministry intern and a, a student ministry intern just to get stuff done because we're so busy in the summer, but to really learn to do ministry. People that will be leading in our churches for years to come. And I believe it is so, so important that our churches start to pour into the lives of those younger ministers to help them find that pace to help them figure out what it looks like to do ministry. See, here, here's the bottom line. Success is not measured by how capable you are at handling your responsibilities. Success is measured by whether or not you leave your responsibilities in capable hands. I mean, think about Jesus' ministry. For three years of his life, he walks alongside these disciples. And he takes them and he says, hey, you feed these people. And they say, we don't have enough food, we don't have enough money. He says, get some fish and bread. He breaks it and he has these disciples pass it out. And they get to be there as he's doing ministry. Or as they're casting out demons, as they've been sent out and they come back to Jesus and they say, hey, we tried to cast out a demon in your name and, and we couldn't do it. And Jesus has a beautiful opportunity there with his disciples to say, no, this kind only comes out with prayer. This, this beautiful teaching moment as he's walking alongside these he does ministry life to life with these disciples and he walks alongside them and he helps them learn to be ministers. Helps them learn to serve. And maybe one of the most beautiful moments, Jesus kneels down in front of his disciples and he washes their feet, saying that, that you need to serve people, that you're not above people, that you're a servant of people. And I think this is exactly what Barnabas does for Paul. He walks alongside of him, and he teaches him how to minister to people. 
how to share his life with people. Because if the kingdom was going to continue to grow, it was going to have to come on the shoulders of not just Paul, but the people that Paul would also pour his life into. The Timothys and those that would come along after him. Because one day someone was going to do what Paul did. And you think about our model for ministry for so long. It's been, let's find someone to do a job, let's give them a ministry, and they go do it the best of their ability. They work so hard at it until they get to a point where they're too tired. And they say, you know what, I'm done. And then as a church, we scramble to find someone else to pick up that ministry and say, hey, here, you do this. You go do it. Well, what do I do? I, I don't know. We, we don't know what the last guy did. You, you go figure it out. And that's not how ministry is supposed to work. It's supposed to be those of us who are serving and sharing and using our gifts, not just focused on our task and what we're doing, but also using it as an opportunity to minister to those who are coming behind us. Because for so long, our churches have forgotten about those who come behind because we're focused so much on what we're doing. We forget to look back. And let me tell you, that is why you look across our nation and you see a church of older people. And you don't see as many churches that are young and vibrant. It's because we've gotten into our little perfect holy huddles. And we focused on ourselves. And we forgot to look at the generation that was coming behind us that we need to pour our life into them. Because will the kingdom continue without them? Absolutely, it will. Jesus promised that it would. But as a church, if we are going to be a vibrant, powerful instrument in the kingdom of God, we must pour into those who are coming behind us. Because if we do not, in a few years, the same thing starts to happen here. And our numbers start to dwindle. And it's not just a numbers thing. But it's because the generation behind us and the generation behind them get lost. And they walk away. So, so real quickly, what, what is it that we do if you are ministering to people, you have to look behind you at the generation that's coming along behind you. What, what do we do? And, and I, I love this little acronym. Remember your meds, okay? First, model. Here's what I do, okay? I, I preach. Here's how I prepare a sermon. Here's how I study, and I love doing, I've gotten to do this with several. Here's how I do it. This is not the right way. This is not the correct way. This is not the best way. This is my way. Here's what I do. Explain. Here's why I do it. This is how my mind works. This is what I think works. This is how I do it. This is why I do it. And next, demonstrate. Demonstrate how you do it. 
It's simple. That, that's all ministry is. It's bringing people along in that journey with you, right? It's bringing people along and allowing them to grow up. And so I wanted to share just real briefly with, with you this morning a story. I want to invite Timothy Edge to come on up. Now, if, if you don't know Timothy, Timothy Edge um, has really grown up here at Shiloh. Um, and Timothy, I, I will just say, has grown in the past year or two so much. And I want to just tell you real briefly some of the things that I've seen and some things that you don't even know about Timothy. One is he took off his lanyard, <laughs> but Timothy was invited to be part of the greeting team. Timothy shows up every Sunday morning at 8.15, 8.15, and he's usually here early, and he's out in the foyer greeting people as they come in, okay? Secondly, this past year when we hit the real big COVID spike and we started our 8 a.m. outdoor service, Timothy Edge came out every single morning, 8 a.m., and led worship for us outside. Now, we're talking about a high school senior. And what I would expect is there's going to be some Sundays when he oversleeps or he's not going to make it. But without fail, if Timothy wasn't feeling well, he texted me the night before and said, I might not make it tomorrow. I'm not feeling good. Or, hey, I'm running five minutes late. I'll be there, though. And the responsibility that he showed was just amazing. And I have seen you grow so much in the last couple of years. And I know a big part of that is your parents, but another big part of that is people in this church that have poured their life into you. So I want you to talk just, just briefly, who are a couple of people that have poured their life into you over the last couple of years? Um, well, for one, my dad, and then also Ben and Melody. Okay. So, so Ben, ben Lascano, if you don't know, is our, our student minister. And, and Ben has poured his life into you. Mm -hmm. and how, what are some ways that he's done that? He's kind of held me, held me accountable whenever, like, I've maybe done something that I shouldn't have. And he's, like, kind of, he stood his ground, you know, but he, like, corrected with love and both boldly, you know. Yeah. And it's helped me grow. And he's, like, given me opportunities to, like, serve others and be a leader. And, like, it's grown my confidence, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then Melody Weaver, you said, who Melody works with our student ministry a lot. What has Melody meant to you? Well, she's, like, known me, like, a whole life, basically. But um, she knows, like, what I've been through and stuff, and she still doesn't view me differently, you know. And she knows, like, the things I've done, but still loves me and, like, you know, supports me and, like, hasn't viewed me differently. So that's, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so what are some of the characteristics in the way that they've loved you that have meant the most? I would say probably just, like, how they've always been there for me. And how, like, their character, like, they're leading by example of, like, how, like, I should be, like, an act. Like, you know, I can look up to them and yeah. follow their example. Yeah. What are a couple of the ways that you've seen yourself grow that you point to? 
I would say probably my confidence, you know, because like a few years ago, I wouldn't, I would not be up here. You wouldn't have gotten no, up. Yeah. I would, no, I would not. So like them giving me opportunities to like serve others and like greet people, you know, it's like really grow my confidence and yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I didn't want to keep Timothy up here a real long time, but I did want you just to see, and there's something really powerful I want you to see, is there was nothing special and out of the ordinary about what they did. Right? What they did, anyone could have done. Right? And so maybe it's not Timothy's life that you're pouring into, but maybe there's another Timothy. And maybe he's not 19, maybe he's 30. But as a church, we must get better at looking behind us and seeing the generations that are coming after us. And we have got to stop. And let me just tell you, one of my biggest pet peeves I hear all the time is we need to focus on our youth, our teenagers, our children. Because they are the church of tomorrow. That is horrible theology. They are not the church of tomorrow. They are the church today. And we must invest in them. We must be looking at those who come along behind us and pouring our life into them. Because People like Timothy, they are the church today. They are important, and they matter, and they have a place. I could say the same thing about Katie working in the booth this morning and Parker working in the booth this morning. High school, college kids, they're both college now, serving and sharing with their gifts, but there are people around them pouring into them. Let's not forget about those who are coming behind because they matter to the kingdom and they matter to Shiloh. As you do ministry, multiply yourself. Hey, thank you so much, Timothy. Appreciate it, man. As we wrap up, Let's hand off the church to the next generation in better shape than it was handed to us. Father, today, we thank you for this time. God, I thank you for Timothy. I thank you so much for the way that we as a church have gotten to see him grow, to use his gifts and his talents to serve and share Jesus with this world and with this community. And Father, we pray that you continue to bless him and use him. Father, I pray for each and every one of us that we would not see our jobs, our ministries, our tasks as something that is too small, but something that makes an impact on the kingdom, something that matters, and that we would walk alongside others in the kingdom to help Jesus be known. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you as we gather. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.
Amen.